A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked. Some of them are high profile. Some of these cases you've never heard of, but they're all fascinating in their own way. Well, today's case is really high profile, and it is one that launched Dr. Judy Ho's career in a different direction, which is just fascinating. Dr. Judy Ho is triple board certified as a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. She's a friend of the show, a regular contributor. Judy, welcome back. Hi, Anna. So good to be here with you to talk about this interesting case. And I love these series that you're doing about my favorite case, where everybody can kind of bring their perspective to something, like you said, sometimes very, very famous, other times really obscure, but always, always interesting. Yeah. And I love the fact that you all, the guests, choose the topic. You all say, this is the case I want to talk about. So it makes it really fun for me because I I get to be more of the listener and the viewer and less of the host and interviewer, even though, of course, I'll have some questions for you. So you have chosen the Jody Arias murder trial that goes back to 2013. I'm just going to give everyone just a a little headline, a summary, and then you're going to dive right in. And I found this um, written on Parade Magazine, and I want to read from it because I think it's actually one of the best summaries of the case. If you don't remember it, and if you do, all of this is going to ring like so true to you. Jodi Arias is perhaps one of the most notorious women in contemporary true crime. She smiled in her mugshot. She sang, Oh, Holy Night, while in police custody, and was convicted of first-degree murder in 2013 in the trial of her former boyfriend, Travis Alexander. Now, the erratic Arius seemingly went from blonde-haired vixen to wispy-banged brunette with glasses overnight. She went from racy to drab, and when she took the stand, she captivated a nation. I mean, everyone was obsessed with this case at the time. So Judy, how did you get involved and how did this change the trajectory of your career? Well, Anna, I had already been working as a licensed and board certified clinical psychologist at the time. And I was doing a lot of forensic work also as an expert witness in both criminal and in civil cases. But I hadn't really done as much speaking about the work that I do professionally in the media. So before the Jodi Arias case, I did have a few TV appearances where I weighed in as a psychology expert, but it was really the Jodi Arias case that essentially catapulted me into being a media expert that was much more regularly utilized um, across different networks and certainly to talk about crime stories and dig into the psychology side of forensics. And really during the entirety of the Jodi Arias case, which went on for months, I was a commentator almost every single day that trial was in session. And so I really remember this case very vividly because it was the big case that really provided me with the platform to speak more about these issues in the media, but also because I was so inundated with a day-to-day, essentially sometimes we were just watching court footage live and trying to comment on why these things were happening, what's the psychology behind all of this, what do these testimonies mean, and what people are supposed to make of it. 
And just to give everyone some perspective, some of you may remember this case, some of you may not, but at the time, it was really gavel-to-gavel coverage on CNN, HLN, which is who you were working for, but all other news agencies uh, who had agencies that had cable channels were running this trial. I mean, you'd click on the television and there would be the Jody Arias trial. That's all anybody was talking about in the world of crime. So it's interesting because that's that's how people were consuming cases at the time. There really weren't podcasts back then. Um, so it's, it's fascinating how this was all developing and, and what the genre of true crime, how it was being consumed and experienced by those who were interested. So I find that interesting because that's really changed significantly now because of COVID. And also things are now online. It's it, again, totally different. What I do want to talk to you about is, you know, in other cases, someone like you would always be beneficial, but maybe not be as crucial to what was going in in court. But because Jody Arias was just so bizarre in so many ways, and that we were obsessed with her because of everything that she was doing, changing and saying, she brought so much attention to her and the trial. She she took the stand for something like, what was it like? Something like 19 days. And generally people who are accused of murder do not take the stand. That's not saying that they don't. But in this case she did. And her demeanor was so fascinating because she she would get snippy at times. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it really was like one of those things you'd sit there with like popcorn watching because of that. What what was going on with her? What was what was her deal, Judy? Well, you know, I think people became so fascinated with her because of some of the reasons that we become fascinated with other true crime cases. She seemed beautiful and intelligent, and just so unlike the profile of anybody that you think would brutally murder their boyfriend. And in fact, she was dubbed the notorious boyfriend killer. I mean, terrible nickname, but also very accurate. Um, And she became one of the most infamous figures of 21st century true crime culture. In fact, around this time of 2013, true crime was really starting to take the center stage in TV shows. And obviously, now you can see it across all media platforms. It's really alive. And she really was a big part of that that genesis of the true crime culture. And I think what was so odd about her is that she one minute would seem extremely sweet and innocent, but then the next minute would get snippy and rude and was clearly manipulative. And I think people were gripped by her testimony, especially, and also the evidence that was available because her story kept changing. So it was almost like she was making stuff up on the spot when she realized she was being pushed into a corner. But some other times it seemed like they were premeditated. And and yet at the same time, she would say everything with a smile. Her body language was really telling, again, changing all the time during her testimony and during trial when she was observing. She clearly took on a different visual persona for trial. So for example, in the pictures as she was with Travis, she was blonde, you know, she was kind of carefree looking. Um, There were pictures of her looking very seductive and all of those types of things. And then when she was in court, she had either dyed her hair or stopped dyeing her hair blonde. It was all brown. She had bangs. She had glasses. Most of the times her hair was kept in a very neat type of hairstyle. She was wearing extremely conservative clothing, which was opposite of some of the pictures and other evidence that were mounting in this case. So there was a clear play on her understanding of her 
of her projection to the world and what that might mean for the court decision. It's interesting because what uh, came out was that she and Travis had a very um, active sexual relationship, which was documented. There were lots of photos in compromising positions of Jody naked and their escapades that came out in court. So it became very salacious, that part of their relationship. And then the actual parts of the murder were horrific and very violent. So it was People were trying to, you know, when you're trying to refocus, you're like, you see this person in the courtroom, you're seeing these photos and hearing these stories of these sexual escapades, and then you see this tightly controlled person sitting there looking like, you know, a drab librarian. Prosecutors said that what happened was that her boyfriend was in the shower. I'm just going to give a few details. And we've also got some clips also that uh, I'd love to hear your commentary on. So he was in the shower and I guess she was joining him in the shower and she had brought a camera into the shower. They were going to take some pictures, but that's not all that she brought with her because apparently as they, I guess they had sex and then took pictures or took pictures while they were having sex. Then she stabbed him 27 times and then she shot him in the face and then she slit his throat. And the blood was everywhere, not just in the shower, but down the hall. I mean, it was gruesome what happened. And the prosecutor had said at the time, it's like, this guy was defenseless. He was naked and in the shower. And if you're bringing a camera to take some photos, what's all this other stuff for? And she claimed it was to defend herself. And 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 she kept changing her story. I want to play this clip from Crime Watch Daily so you all, if if you're not familiar with the case, can get an idea of what Jody's like when being interviewed. This is from one of our stories, and it's narrated by correspondent Pat LaLama. In a personal interview with our Phoenix affiliate, ABC 15, conducted on the eve of her sentencing, she reveals her last moments with ex-boyfriend Travis Alexander. What were the last words Travis said to you? We were talking about the pictures, you know, and no, that one's good. We'll keep that one. We'll delete that one. And he went from that to, I'm going to kill you over a camera? Um, It wasn't instantaneous. It built within a matter of minutes and explaining how she composed herself on the stand. I was very nervous. I was emotional, but it's it's like, I have a lot of practice suppressing things. You realize people view that as being cold. Well, they're not in my shoes and I'm certainly not cold. So Judy, in this clip, very poised. This is a woman who's on trial for murder. That's not even from the actual case. And she talks about how she she's accustomed to keeping things under control. I would say she's just controlling. Absolutely. I mean, the, the motive, I mean, they kept going back and forth on what is the motive for Jody to kill her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend at the time? Because part of what had their relationship fall apart was because Travis Alexander was saying, we're over. This is done. This is essentially a fling. I can't be serious with you. I'm going to pursue other women. And there was a theory that she became so jealous and really had to have him for herself that she essentially struck back once she realized that their relationship was not able to be saved because Travis had made up his mind. And so she had been controlling this entire time and she controlled Travis with her sexual escapades because that's one of the reasons why 
Travis kept coming back. Travis was somebody that grew up in a pretty religious community. And so he had certain ideas about what is a proper relationship with a girlfriend and what you're supposed to do and not do. And essentially, Jody broke all of those rules. And it was probably what was tantalizing to Travis about her. And Essentially, I think whenever he would try to cut the cord with Jody, she kept looping him back in with that sexual escapade and that sexual prowess that she had. And he obviously sort of saw her in many ways in terms of people's testimonies and what kind of unfolded as a bit of a sex toy. Like he was never going to be serious with her. This was not the person that he was going to bring home to mom and marry, but the sex was too good. He wasn't going to completely cut her off either, even though she exhibited stalking behaviors and it was escalating as he was trying to cut the cord with her. And so on the one hand, maybe there were some warning signs that Travis probably had saw as they were progressing in their relationship, but Jody also made herself so available to him. Him, that he essentially just kept letting her back into his life. And eventually it cost him his life. But the fact that her story kept changing and that she was always the victim in the story, like for example, when the police first indicted her, she first claimed that masked home invaders had murdered Travis and that she actually did know about it, but she didn't go to the cops because she was afraid that these masked invaders would then come after her. After that notion fell apart, that was when she reportedly then told detectives that she killed Alexander in self-defense because Travis had been a, a total domestic abuser this whole time, but she was trying to preserve his reputation. So she didn't really want to say that out loud, but now she kind of has to because it's really the truth and she has to stand up for all battered women out there. I mean, obviously no one bought that excuse, but the fact that she kept changing her story like this and each story was her being in the victim seat as opposed to somebody who is responsible for those behaviors is in direct contrast to what you said, which is her personality. What kind of came through is that she was this very controlling and calculating person. Judy, you said that there was something that happened during the trial that really bugged you. It bugged you because of the effect that it could have on true victims of domestic violence. What, what was that moment? Oh, it was definitely so... To me, it was disgusting because it was towards the end of the trial and she had, again, taken center stage, as we know. Jody loves her center stage. She loved telling her story. She was on the stand for days. And towards the end, she said, and this was after she gave that story of Travis being a domestic abuser, and she had made apparently a box of T-shirts um, with a domestic abuser prevention cause printed across the shirt. And she held it up for everybody to see. And, you know, she was talking to the judge and addressing the jury and she was kind of gesturing. I mean, she was a very good performer. And she said, okay, everybody, in, in, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I need to stand up for all people who are victims of domestic abuse. And I hope that with my story and with this platform in this moment, that we can call more attention to this very important cause. And the whole time she was holding up this t-shirt and it just felt so put on. And I mean, it was very hard for me to not roll my eyes because obviously there was no evidence that Travis had ever abused her. And what really bothered me about that, Anna, is that there are true victims of domestic violence out there, so many, more than we can count. And oftentimes when they come forward, there's already a lot of shame and guilt. They're often not believed. and Sometimes these individuals, when they can't get out in time, or if people don't believe them, they have nowhere to go, they have to go back to their abuser. 
some of them end up dying. People die from domestic abuse. And I was just thinking about how she was utilizing this cause that's clearly real for so many victims out there. But now she's kind of shedding this, this spot, this black spot over people who actually have been abused and maybe causing people to question, well, when somebody says that they're being abused, should I believe them? And, you know, it's, it's, it was something that was very upsetting to me because I know that there are so many real victims out there that are already being disbelieved and that she was maybe contributing to that perception. Judy, do you think that she took the stand because she was so convinced, as so many criminals are, that they are smarter than everyone else, and if they could just have a moment to explain to you that then you'll understand and that, of course, she'd get away with it? Do you think that's what was going on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she has said many times, and there is so much footage of her talking about this, that essentially she said, no jury is going to convict me because I'm innocent. And she actually said, you can mark my words on that. This is what she told Inside Edition on November 8th of that year when the trial was ongoing. And I think that for her, she really believed that with all of the different tactics and having a, you know, a good defense attorney and having these different versions of her stories. And perhaps she really thought if I take the stand and have people be um, for myself to be endeared to everybody else, that they're going to believe me. I'm a sweet girl and some bad stuff happened to me, but this was not my fault. I did not do anything that deserves prosecution. I really think that she believed that that was going to work in her favor. And throughout the entire trial, and I know that she was probably watching the coverage too, people kept commenting on the fact that she doesn't fit the profile. You know, we, we talk all the time, and I know, Anna, you're really familiar with this, that female murderers, they generally use murder methods that are, for the lack of a better word, cleaner, yeah. less dirty. They, yeah. they, they use poison. You know, they use things that are a little bit at the distance. You know, they might use an accomplice. Like, they don't generally go to town on the person the way that she did on Travis. I mean, people were saying that he, his throat was slit from ear to ear. She had stabbed him, as you said, 27 or so times. The scene was extremely bloody. And that is not usually what you see in a female murderer. And she just didn't seem like she was capable of something like that. She just didn't fit the profile. She's kind of smaller framed. And, you know, she, it just people have these perceptions of women, especially. And some of the statistics actually bear that out. I think she was counting on those things to be in her favor, too. Like, this looks like something that maybe a big burly guy did. And maybe if I play up my female uh, tendencies, that people will see that and, and think that that doesn't fit the profile or the scene of the crime. If you had to diagnose her or describe what was going on in her head, how, what, what would you say? Well, you know, I remember that we talked about this a lot. It's like, obviously, I want to preface this by saying I never met Jodi Arias. Mm -hmm. And so all of my information is what's available in media and watching her testify. But, you know, we talk about personality traits, ways in which we interface with the world and how we um, how our worldview changes the way that we might perceive ourselves and the way that we interact with others. And Jodi showed some signs of borderline personality. She showed some signs of extreme anger, especially when she felt like she was being um, 
diminished in any way by any person. She seemed like she had very unstable relationships and an unstable sense of self. And she also seemed like she really had very major abandonment issues because again, We've all been there where, you know, you've been in a relationship and maybe it ended sooner than you wanted it to. And, you know, you cry and you mourn, but she would not let it go. This is completely extreme in terms of her, her way of dealing with Travis once he made it known that their relationship was over. And sometimes people with borderline personality traits, they have very extreme reactions to being abandoned or perceived abandonment of any sort. Obviously, the majority and almost all borderline personality individuals are not murderers. But this right. is kind of one taken to the extreme because she also had some other traits that in colloquial terms we call psychopathy, but in the clinical literature we call antisocial personality, where there's a disregard for rules, there's a, a inherent narcissism, there's sort of a I'll do whatever I need to, it's a means to an end sort of thing, and it doesn't really matter who I hurt in the process. And essentially, People were very upset that, again, you know, with this domestic violence uh, accusation of Travis, that even postmortem, when he couldn't defend himself, she was essentially totally fine with completely disparaging his reputation so that she could get off clean. And his family and other people who knew him were just sickened by that because they're like, this is not, hey, listen, this is not a guy who would do that to a woman. Like, Maybe he has his faults, but like this is going too far, but she doesn't really care. She doesn't care who she hurts in the process as long as she gets a lighter sentence or no sentence at all. Obviously, that did not pan out for her. She's serving a life sentence now. The abandonment issue is very interesting, this, this sense to, to be needed, wanted, and to get all the attention. So her attorney, she went through a bunch of attorneys. Mm. People really just could not handle representing her. And the last attorney, the one who represented her at trial, actually asked the judge to be removed. He did not want to represent her because she was a handful. And the judge said, sorry, you're stuck with her. So he did the best he could, and he's written a book since. But what I find interesting about what he what he has talked about since the trial is that he said she was exhausting. He found her emotionally exhausting. He said every trip that he'd have to make to the jail, you know, to prep for trial or anything like that, he said he knew going in it was going to be at least two and a half hours because she wasn't going to let him go. And then she was fantasizing that he was her boyfriend. He had no interest in her. He didn't like her. You know, he defended her. And and so I find that so fascinating that that her own attorney was just exhausted. It's just like, you are too much, woman. I can't deal with you. And, and I thought that was so insightful. I think the, the other thing that's interesting, I want to play another clip. This is when she's actually on the stand and she's being cross-examined by the prosecutor and she gets really snippy with him. You're making my brain scramble. So how is it that if it just happened, you can't even remember what you just said. I think I'm more focused on your posture and your tone and your anger, so it's hard to process the question. So Judy, I mean, this is really incredible. You're on the stand defending yourself against a murder charge, and you're telling the prosecutor that just his posture is bothering you and distracting you, that you can't concentrate on the question because you don't like him and he's making your brains scramble. I mean, that really takes a lot of chutzpah. 
Absolutely. I mean, it was really interesting because at this point, the prosecutor Martinez was saying, you don't know what you just said. Didn't that just happen? Like literally a minute ago is basically his insinuation. You can't even remember what you just said. And as you mentioned, she said, I think I'm more focused on your posture, your tone and your anger. The fact that she can say that so specifically means that she most likely did have the wherewithal and the cognitive ability to recollect what she just said a couple minutes earlier. She was clearly playing games with him. And I think that this is part of what, you know, what, again, one of these shocking moments of the Jodi Arias case is that while her life is on the line, she was still essentially in many ways playing these games. And I think people wised up to it. So what was interesting is, you know, as I mentioned, I work as an expert witness. So sometimes I'm being retained by the prosecution or the defense um, or in civil cases, either the plaintiff or the defense. And generally, of course, you try to, I'm trying to do my job as impartially as possible, but clearly the attorneys that hired you is hoping that you'll say something that they can use in the case for their benefit, for their side, right? And so they did have multiple experts. They did hire multiple experts for the defense that alleged that Jody had suffered from numerous mental and emotional afflictions, but one of the ones that they said that she suffered from was post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, this links up to her whole claim that she had PTSD from being with Travis, that he was just this horrible person. But then none of the information really bore that out. So even though these experts that they hired were saying that this happened, as she was trying to recount things that happened in Travis's relationship with her, nothing really made sense. And her story didn't make sense. And yet I felt like she was kind of playing that up when she was in this moment with Prosecutor Martinez, because it is well known in the literature that when individuals truly suffer from PTSD, that they sometimes have memory difficulties. Sometimes the memory difficulties have to do with the actual trauma, though, and not so much about do you remember what you just ate five minutes ago? Like, that's not really the kind of memory disturbance people have from PTSD. And so she may not have known exactly what she was going to play up, but she was trying to do it. And I don't think it passed, obviously. And how do you think the jury handled all of this and took it? And obviously they found her guilty, but I always find, you know, I love being in the courtroom and watching the jurors when, depending on who's on the stand, because I'm like, ooh, ooh, that one, oh, she picked up on that. Oh, he didn't like that. I mean, that that's for me always the most fascinating thing to watch. What? How do you think this all went over with the jury? Well, I think that generally the jury in the beginning probably were trying to do their best at staying neutral. But towards the end, I think, especially in the, the post-mortem dissection of how it all went, many jurors said that there were a number of things that damaged her criteria, uh, sorry, her credibility um, as the trial wore on. And I think that part of it was that, you know, Arias had done all of these things that clearly Travis didn't even know about. For example, she had lied about different things, obviously, all throughout the case, sometimes really insignificant things like whether or not a restaurant existed along a highway. But <laughs> she but she also lied about a lot of other things like she never told Travis that she was secretly taping them while they were having phone sex. And when they were having phone sex, they were talking about having oral and anal sex. And Aria said, well, this is because, you know, Travis's belief, he's a Mormon, they don't believe that this would be against the regulations if we did it this way. But but she recorded him without him knowing or giving her permission. So what was she planning to do with that? You know, maybe to blackmail him later. Like there was always something that seemed like it was in the back of her mind thinking ahead. And also she talked about how 
again, as she started to try to damage Travis's credibility and who he was, she started to allege that Travis was sexually attracted to both male and female children. There was no evidence that emerged to back up that claim. But imagine the kind of damage that you do to somebody's reputation by calling them a pedophile once they're dead and they can't defend themselves. And then she said, well, this is how afraid I was of Travis. She told the court that on June 4th, she dropped Alexander's digital camera. And he got so angry that she feared for her life, which prompted her to fight back with a knife. Again, none of these things bore out. Nobody said Travis ever had any violent tendencies. And I think as she kept changing her story and they became more and more far-fetched, like now he's also a pedophile on top of being a domestic abuser, the jury just kind of threw up their hands like, we can't take this person seriously. So she went a little too far. Yeah, she was finally found guilty in 2013. And then she told the local television station in Phoenix that she would rather be sentenced to death than to receive life in prison. But before the jury began deliberations on the sentence of what would be after her conviction, um, she changed her mind. (laughs) She said, oh, you know what? You know what I said that I'd rather die? Never mind. Life is okay. Right? So... (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately, she ended up getting a, a, a retrial at sentencing of all things, a separate sentencing hearing and trial because of all the shenanigans that went on. And she was finally sentenced to life in prison without parole on April 13th of 2015. Just again, because it's like the trial that would just never end. Well, Jody wanted to appeal this conviction. And in March of 2020, an Arizona Court of Appeals up held the conviction not going anywhere jody's gonna be rotten behind bars for her crimes you know it's amazing to me that she's still a fascination for some people like i don't think she's ever gonna be quiet we're always gonna want to hear from her and what does that say about us judy Oh, absolutely. I mean, she continues to spark controversy both online and off. Most recently, apparently there was a claim made by her former cellmate that Arias had told her she had helped with the murder. So now she's trying to say, guess what, guys? There was a secret accomplice and this you didn't solve the crime. You got to go find that accomplice. And she also recently won a Christmas dinner by singing Oh Holy Night in a prison talent contest. And there's another really sad fact that one of her defense attorneys had said, Arias is the reason why cancer infested my body. I mean, she really has impacted people who have actually directly known her and people who are just observers like us. And I think, what does that tell? What does that tell us about the average viewer? Why we're fascinated with this? Well, I think it, it really calls to the fact that all human beings to, to an extent, we're all voyeurs to an extent. You know, we, we observe and we're fascinated by these stories that seem implausible, but happen to people we might know. Like Jody Arias doesn't seem that far fetched from somebody that you could be friends with when you were younger or your daughter's friend or somebody that you know from your neighborhood. And yet these horrible grotesque things happen. And it was like each thing just completely trumped the next thing. You know, she just kept going with these lies. They just kept, you know, they just kept having all of this evidence that essentially was just so shocking. And then she would have some way to explain them away. So I think that the why, the reason why people are so 
gripped by this is because Jody, even herself, while behind bars, is still feeding the controversy. And there were just so many moments that didn't make sense throughout this entire case. Um, very early on, there was footage of her interrogation. And I don't know if you remember some of this, Anna, but she was acting so bizarrely in her interrogation. Her emotions just seemed like completely mismatched and her behavior was all over the place that there were hundreds of body language experts that were trying to dissect, like, what does this mean about this person's psyche? But just even that, just even the, just even the interrogation tapes themselves had sparked so much controversy controversy even before the trial started. Yeah, I think it's because she's a train wreck. And <laughs> sometimes we can't look away from the train wreck. Yeah. And that's how I see her and her actions. And yeah, we kind of do feed into that into her. But it's kind of hard not to look when it's just so spectacular. And yes. so different from anything else that we've seen. We've seen some cases like that, but she really was extraordinary in that sense. And again, when you place it at a time and a place and you put it in context, it really, you know, she is one of the most notorious killers of that decade, without question, without question, and continues to be, you know, and there are uh, movies about her and so much and books have been written about her. And at the end of the at the end of the day, what I think is so sad is that nobody really likes her. Look, I get it. She's a, she's a convicted killer. I'm not looking for any sympathy. But the takeaway from the people who either had to defend her, prosecute her, work with her, no matter what, is like, she's just not likable. Nobody likes her. And she wants to be liked more than anything and be the center of attention. But it's just like, girl, you're just not likable. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And and you're right. And that's partially why people couldn't look away, like you said, because she was a train wreck. And actually, just a couple of months ago, there was another documentary that was released about her, two hour special on Discovery. So I, I think that the fascination is going to continue. And for as long as she's alive, she's going to keep speaking her story and her story is probably going to keep changing, too. Well, I, I do love this turn of events that this random woman who obviously you didn't know ends up changing the trajectory of what you do and how you do it and made you do it in a more public manner, which is how we know you. And, and then I look at the totality of what you do. And I always say this, that how much I love your Instagram because it's always so inspiring. You always have tips and guidelines and I try to follow some of them and sometimes I can't carry them through, but I, that's, and I love that because it all kind of sparked from something very negative like that case, but it, it just moved your career into a different path. You still do all of your private work, obviously. And, and just to make sure we, we just want to make this clear again, this is not a case that you worked on with her because as we were discussing, Judy, is there a favorite case you want to talk to us about? We'd love to have you on. You said, I'm prohibited from discussing any case in which I ever worked with anyone. So that really limited almost everything that you did <laughs> from yeah. being able to talk to us. Well, Judy, thank you so much for sharing your favorite case. I'm so glad that in a weird way, it made you the Dr. Judy Ho of, you know, media celebrity that you are. <laughs> so you could continue to, to guide us through amazing cases. 
Oh, thank you, Anna. And it was uh, really interesting to walk down memory lane on this case. And uh, as you mentioned, it's not totally over. Maybe you'll end up having to feature a new update on Jodi Arias on your show sometime because there will be a new revelation that we all have to go and discover. So a new and false revelation, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> in yeah, this case. Exactly. It's been a pleasure for anybody who wants to follow you, Judy, where can they find you? Well, they can find me at Dr. Judy Ho, D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O on Instagram or my website, drjudyho.com. And Anna, thank you for being such a supporter of my Instagram. I love that we follow each other and can keep up with what we're up to. Yeah, when we don't get a chance. Actually, I haven't seen you in person in more than a year. <laughs> I know. It's so crazy. I can't wait until we see each other in person again. <laughs> me too. Me too. And you can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Um, thank you, Judy. Thank you, everyone. You can, of course, catch our other episodes of My Favorite Case wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, on our YouTube channel. I'm Anna Garcia. Thanks for joining us.